You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone, a church out of Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. And today I'm joined by David Wilson, our student pastor, and Bobby Harrell, our lead pastor. Together, what we're doing is we're going deep into the content of 1 Corinthians, really allowing our congregation, but also all of our listeners all around the world to understand the truths, the applications, and all the content that's found in this incredible letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. We hope that you're engaged in the study on your own personal time, that what we're doing is supplemental to the study that you're doing. What we'd love is to hear your perspective. We'd love to hear the things that God is impressing on your heart as you read the book of 1 Corinthians. We'd love to hear any questions that you may have and be able to respond to those. Really open up this conversation to more than just the three of us and allow all of our listeners to have a voice in the moment. So if you have any questions, comments, feedback, we'd love for you to text those questions to 817-809-3040. From there, we'll take all the very best questions and respond to the ones that we think will be most broadly applicable to our listeners. Hey, we're so thankful that you're listening. We're so thankful that you're taking the time out of your day to join in on this podcast, and we can't wait to dig into our study. As we were preparing for this series, David, we gave ourselves perhaps too heavy of a lift, but in order for the series not to run 16 weeks yeah. or more, because sometimes you'll have like an introductory sermon that right, sets which we up did the whole for series. Sure. Yeah, so that's on our podcast. A 17 plus week series is very in-depth and I'm not saying we should scratch that idea, but it does get to be sometimes long in the tooth where you deal with the same subject matter for many, many weeks, especially in in the Easter season leading into summer, we felt like there would need to be a change of pace as we got towards the month of May. So we chose to double up some chapters. Yeah. So we saw this last week, we did chapters five and six, both in the sermon on Sunday and then in the podcast from last week. And And then then this week, seven and eight, you covered seven and eight on your Sunday sermon. Upcoming Sunday, nine and 10. Mm -hmm. And so, and then we'll go back to some single chapters later. Mm -hmm. But we felt that because of the nature of the material, we could double them up. So first of all, let me say to all of those who are regular worshipers here on Sunday, I'm so sorry for the length of those messages. I'm trying (laughs) to really both cover the material so that you're not just left with any confusion, but also not to let the sermons get out of hand and length. And if you're a regular attender, you know, we feel like a pretty good solid 40 minute sermon is just about where it needs to be. And these have been in excess of that. So I'd imagine most people are really enjoying the content though, and, and digging in and learning from a real level of depth that maybe we're not to, to me, know, accustomed to when we study this kind of book. I know what I have to deliver on Sunday, you know, the, the message that needs to be delivered. You try to make it conform to the time allotment, but I will say this, once we get up and we start talking about like the material Sunday from chapter seven on sexuality and marriage and divorce and all this. It's so riveting that you just blink your eyes, man. And just half of your time has gone that fast. But anyway, we've covered a lot of material in a short amount of time and we needed to do that to compress these chapters together. So we appreciate everybody's patience. And I felt like because we've covered it fairly thoroughly, we won't get as many bizarre questions, at least, because people are now really, I think, settled into the understanding. Don't take a verse out of its context. Mm-hmm. Read it within the scope of the paragraph and the letter itself now and understand there's a two-way conversation, but you can only hear one side of it. Yeah. So I want to set this conversation up with the fact that something happened between five and six, which was two weeks ago, and seven, eight, which we did Sunday, Paul transitioned away from Chloe's report. He's addressing things that have been brought up by the delegation that came from Chloe. And now he shifted over to now concerning the things you wrote to me about. Mm -hmm. And we showed everyone Sunday how that language will continue to show up now throughout the book. And he may, may mix many issues in his conversation going, but he's clearly transitioned to addressing their issues that they've written to him about. Zero Corinthians again stands for, that's our way of saying, material has already 
been passed back and forth letters, exchanges of conversations, delegations have already happened. Many of them. We don't know how many, Mm -hmm. but many of them. And now Paul addresses their concerns. This is where things get delicate because the things they're asking Paul about touch us in a very nerve-centric place. I mean, they, they touch our hearts in a way when you're talking about divorce, should I break off my engagement, mm-hmm. my diet, how I conduct my social life, separation, but what is biblical separation? And does that separation involve me living an isolated monastic life? Or is Paul saying something altogether different right. from that, which right. he is, hint, hint, he's saying something very different from that. So these situations are very delicate. So on Sunday, we covered chapter seven mm-hmm. and eight, and uh, chapter eight is about food offered to idols and how, what should your attitude and your actions be about engaging either in the temple or in the marketplace or in the home of a private citizen with food offered to idols. And that conversation, David, you'll pick up again in chapter nine, Paul will bring it up again and you can further develop that. So let me not deal too awful much with that. Let's back up instead to chapter seven, where Paul really, the issues are marriage, sexuality, divorce, engagement. It's a whole plethora of other issues. And he begins talking about marriage concerning the things I wrote to you about And depending on how the translator dealt with this, it's either good for a man not to be married. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to use a woman for sex. It's good to abstain from sexual relations. It gets translated about four or five. This is wildly different from one translation to the next. And so again, the translation committees are trying to figure out what Zero Corinthians conversation looked like so that they can accurately recreate Paul's answer that's coming. But I want to call our podcast listeners back to this idea of a quotation refutation device, a QRD, as we are going to start calling it, Mm -hmm. where Paul quotes them. And in our modern Bible versions now, NIV, CSB that we're using in in the congregation right now, It's laid out in paragraph form in conversational style. And the publisher has helped us by trying to put quotes Mm -hmm. where it seems obvious that Paul is quoting the Corinthians. And that really, really helps the conversation. When you read like a KJV, which I, the tradition I grew up in, there are no quotes. And you think sometimes Paul is saying crazy things. Right, Right. that he is condoning or endorsing this kind of thought, which is clearly something that he's refuting, right? And this is something that even when you look at certain kind of manuscripts, when the manuscripts were handed over time from one generation to the next, and they realized, oh, there's certain quotations that are maybe going to get lost here. They even added back in little I don't want to say punctuation marks because it's not quite that, but do do you want to talk a little bit about what this looked like? They're scribal marks. Let's call them that. It's something that the, the copyist would put like little dots Mm -hmm. or a bar over in the margin. And all it is, is he's signaling his peers who are copyists and, and theologians that when you're reading through the text, if you see these little symbols I made over in the margin, then I want your eyes to perk up a little bit. I'm calling your attention to the fact that it's either a quote or something's not right right here right. or something needs to be addressed right here. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're just little marks. And punctuation indicates like comma, period. Right. So it's not really punctuation. It's signals. Yeah. They're signals to other people reading those ancient manuscripts that something is happening here that you needs to you, you need to be focused on. And if you were to look at manuscripts of ancient Greek, it's in block style. There's not indentation. There's right. not no punctuation. There's, there's not a lot of modern like English rules that you can apply back to it, which is why translating sentences and translating paragraphs and translating all of it begins to be confusing, which is again, why the scribes added in some things in order for us to be sure we can understand there's a quote happening here. There's something happening here, a break of thought, whatever it might be. It's an indication that something's happening because as I'm looking at just a big block text, it's hard to know what's happening without any punctuation at all. Well, and it's hard for even just the most brilliant scholars. And that's why when you look at something like chapter seven, verse one, where there is this quote, 
Yeah. You go from one translation to the next and it is just dramatically different in it, style and content even. And that's because Greek is kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. It's not nuanced. it's not the same. Nuanced. It's very nuanced. It's not the same kind of language that we have. And right. so it's not like you say, you know, hola is hello. It's not as simple as that. Yeah. There's a whole, you know, theory of do you translate every word as it looks or do sure. you translate every thought as it comes across? Or the meaning of what or yeah, the, the meaning, meaning of what's being yeah. said. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of science to it, if you would. There, there's a lot of rules that you can apply back into the translation. But sometimes it's an art form in that you have to look at specific moments like this. And then you can apply, like they've done here, like the CSB or the NIV, these quotation marks for clarity. But again, it's not there in the manuscript itself necessarily. Okay. And, and one of the giveaways to me is when you're reading through, let's just stay with 1 Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're reading through 1 Corinthians, and you see a statement on the page yeah. that shocks everything you know to be true. Without right? quotes, even. Y- you yes. Know? And you're like, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. This is the opposite right. of everything that's being said. Or yeah. this is the opposite of the argument that Paul's trying to make. Or this is the opposite of everything I've been taught as a Christian. And mm-hmm. there are going to be several of those now right. as we go towards the end of the book. Yep. Most of them are quoted. Mm-hmm. There are some places, I, I mentioned one on Sunday, where it looks like maybe verse 8 maybe should be quoted, but there's no consensus, so we're no. not going to quote it. But it looks sure. like Paul then turns around and not rebuts it, but readdresses the same thought again with a little pushback in, in verse number 9. But So let, let's just get to some summary things and make sure we've covered all the bases that we need to cover. I did receive some questions in person in a small group I was in this week that I want to put out there for you guys to comment on, and I'll... I'll get to that here in a minute, but Paul addresses marriage in in the opening 16 verses of chapter seven with that shocking opening quote, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just like, well, what do I do with that? (laughs) What is to happen then? How do you have a healthy sexual expression and ethic in a Christian home? Well, you realize because of the quotes, that's not Paul's quote. That's. Paul quoting them, and now he's going to refute. refute. Mm-hmm. Now he's going to rebut with the QRD device. And so what he goes on to say is, in those opening about seven verses, is there is to be no abstinence in marriage. Mm-hmm. And I want to say this, because of my tradition that I grew up in, in a very orthodox, conservative Baptist background, and it's not just Baptist. It would also, what I'm about to say would relate to, gosh, Pentecostal and charismatic there, there's and assembly many, of God. Yeah. And yeah, we could, we could wax eloquent about very conservative traditions. But my tradition is the one I can speak to because it's mine. <laughs> my dad was a great pastor and he exposed me to a lot of wonderful Bible preachers. But here's my baggage. Growing up in the church, sex was a bad thing, not a good thing. Mm. and it creates a certain amount of baggage for everyone who grew up in the church to get into adulthood and have any kind of healthy understanding of sexuality without negative baggage attached to it. Right. Now, let me just fast forward the conversation. I can't even tell you how many couples I've counseled now as a pastor who in their 20s, you know, they're getting married and they're starting their family and their life together come back to their pastor for counseling regarding some intimacy issues that they're dealing with. And one of the common things is if you were raised in the tradition I was, as I was, you'll hear young couples talk about struggling to just let go, struggling to give themselves fully to their spouse because you think, well, now you're married. Flip the switch. You know, all things are lawful. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, I mean, if all of your childhood and upbringing, you're told that not only is it wrong to have sex, but that it's wrong to even think about it's it. Dirty. It's, it's dirty. It's yeah. dirty. It's an absolute cloud over the even the concept of sex. So then when now in marriage, sex is allowed and encouraged, it's hard to just remove the cloud that surrounds your understanding of it. What we discover is people can't flip the switch. No one can. Your human psyche can't just go from 18 to 25 years of being told dirty, dirty, off limits, off limits. Don't go there. Don't even think about it. Don't look at it. Don't talk about it. Really, this is the big issue. Don't talk about it. Yeah. 
And then all of a sudden now, okay, premarital counseling is very poorly done in our traditions and a couple gets married and all these switches are supposed to flip now in your mind that, you know, now it's yours to enjoy all of a sudden after 20 years of, you know, a beat down over it. I guess my, what I want to say to our listeners is we feel your pain a little bit. (laughs) We get that many of you grew up in the same tradition and maybe you're as frustrated as I am that the church does not talk enough about sexuality. Well, because the Bible talks about it plenty. Well, and so you know, the, so then he said the problem is not a Bible problem. The yeah. problem is a church problem, not addressing what the Bible's talking about. This is about. correct. And, and the Bible is often misunderstood because people have a takeaway. Let me say the unsaved world has a takeaway that Christianity is very anti-sex. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible's always, you know, speaking against sexual expression, always speaking against. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality because the Gentiles... I'm really dealing with most of the New Testament now as the church expands Mm -hmm. after the resurrection into Europe and around the world. The world was filled with idolaters versus monotheism, which the Jews pretty much, you know, owned. But now Judaism has turned into Christianity, if you would, or Christianity has sprung out of the roots of Judaism. Mm -hmm. It'd be a better way to say it. And... Now, the Gentiles who are idolaters have such an open and free and you might even say twisted or perverted sexuality that it needs to be addressed because it became an issue in every Gentile church. Paul has to address the church on some issues of a proper sexual ethic for the new believers who now have received the gospel and there is an ethic that comes with the gospel, yeah. some expected behaviors that come with that. And Paul's articulating them. It's not a beat down of sexuality. It's about a redirecting it into the proper boundaries and God's ethic for sexuality within marriage. So the Bible has a lot to say about it. The church, however, has only said negative things about it. Yeah. We've never seen the right. positive sides. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is Paul is constantly trying to redirect a really broken model and understanding of what sex is, right? He's talking to these cultures where they've just completely skewed the intention and the purpose and the functionality of sexual relations. And he's trying to repurpose those understandings to be more aligned with the biblical you know, model of it. Well, and I think, I think too, in our, so I think we should come back to this idea of in our traditions, because maybe this wasn't a forever church problem, or maybe it was either way. The point is that I think the church has closed the door on a lot of these conversations. I think particularly as it deals with men, because men in the rhetoric are insatiable sex monsters that if they look at anything, they, they just can't control they themselves. They just can't control themselves. And so we should not talk about sex. We shouldn't deal with it as an issue that's worthy of our time or airtime at all, because I don't want to tempt somebody who might be having these, these just constant sexual thoughts all the time. And I think that's a complete misnomer and a complete mischaracterization of who men are actually right, for yeah, that matter. Yeah. To paint men as though there's absolutely no self-control in conduct or in thought, right. that's a problem. And then it also sets up an unfair expectation for women who assume that if they have sexual desires, sure, that then sure. they are programmed incorrectly because we've said yeah. that men are the sexual beings. Right. right. And so again, it just sets up this weird expectation on both sides. And now nobody can talk about it in a healthy way because everyone's thinking about every, what everyone's thinking and everyone's assuming that I think yeah. that's the big thing. Everyone's assuming that everybody's thinking about something or is going to a horrible place in their minds. And we're creating uh, these awful, sinful patterns within people. And I think of course we should be modest and we should be thinking critically about how we talk about this topic, sure, but yeah. at the same time to not talk about it at all creates, I think what we've seen in the purity culture, the past 50, 60 years where the only thing we say is don't do it. Yeah. I just want to, I'm glad we're having this conversation with our people and engaging our people. We made a very deliberate, conscious, intentional decision to have several conversations about, I guess, from several years back now. I don't know if it's been two, three, four years where we did the reverse the curse series and talked about sexuality and marriage and equality mm-hmm. and, and a lot of issues that are taboo. Not just for the shock factor of those conversations, because it's way, way overdue in our churches to have some conversations about these issues. And I want to put our people at ease. I I know we've we've had two weeks now where sex has shown up in the sermon (laughs) 
Uh, well, it's in the Bible, so well, yeah, that's why we're... Yeah. Jokingly, people <laughs> yeah. will come by and give me a little nudge and like yeah. another R-rated sermon, Pastor, way to go, right. you know? And it's not like we're just trying to do something outlandish to shock yeah. everybody. This is just the material. Yeah. And it's it's long overdue for the church to have conversations. And I think, you know, we could expand this conversation for Christian families mm-hmm. to be having conversations about sex in their homes with their children. Yep. I talked to our children's pastor, Erica, and to you, David, as the one that oversees the student ministry, the youth. Uh, and one of the, the conversation I engaged you guys in this week was, what do we need to be telling our parents yeah. about engaging their children with conversations, displaying appropriate affection for our spouse in front of our children, whether that's kissing yeah. your spouse or holding hands or yeah. let them see you hug one another. Or I'm always, of course, I'm always saying appropriately, yeah. but yeah. You, you need to touch one another. There, there doesn't need to be a distant coldness sure. between husbands and wives in our Christian homes. There needs to be this bubbling affection mm-hmm. and physical touch and, and love and kisses and things. Otherwise, we are programming our children in, in a yeah. way that they're not going to know how to deal with. And one of the questions I asked you guys was, you know, at what age do we need to be having yeah. conversations? And, and if parents yeah. are having trouble with those conversations, can they come talk to you guys about ways to, you know, to, to talk about this or... What would you recommend? Yeah, I've got several resources that, that, and I know that Erica does as well, that will help guide conversations like this. The, I think the biggest thing, though, is that you, you need to, more than you need a guided script on what to say or not to say, you need to gauge what's appropriate for your student and or, or your kid at what level they can understand. And then I think the biggest hurdle is having the conversations earlier than you want to. I think, I think that's the big thing is we all have this threshold. We think it has to happen at year, whatever, or grade, whatever. Yeah. And the, the studies show now that, that children, children, I'm not, I should stop saying students. I should say children are exposed to pornography, whether it's in the home or outside of the home. And it, the reality is again, that there are smartphones everywhere. The ability to see uh, wh- whether it's very graphic pornography or softcore pornography, it, it's, it can happen on social media sites. It, it can happen anywhere. And so the exposure rate for those things is, is escalating. And so we, in like kind, need to then escalate and have the conversation earlier than we expect to. But some of our parents would say, David, Erica, you know, we have ways to control what our kids are seeing, or I'm not going to give my, my youngster a cell phone. Mm-hmm, sure. So how are they going to be exposed? Yeah, their friends have one. Their friends have a, a cell phone. There, there are ac- there's access to technology anywhere you go and in any setting. Right. It, and you hate to be too grim about no, it, but at the same time, it's going to be realistic. It's the reality of the moment. That, and the reality it. of the moment is that things like pornography or even just sexual discussion amongst sure. children has never been more accessible than it is right now. That's absolutely and, right. And if that's the case, then parents have to be proactive and feed a very healthy approach and understanding of sex before they start seeing these very unhealthy models. And I think that just as I'll just speak for myself, but I assume that most parents are going to feel like me when I say this. I think I would rather feel the question from my my child about sex than Google. And that's what's going to happen is when your students are curious, when your children are curious, they're going to go to Google and ask questions and you're not going to be able to frame the conversation. You're not going to be able to negotiate some of the, the, the more difficult topics to go through and move through. And you're not going to be able to help them understand in a really healthy way that then sets you up as kind of a, a leader and a, an authority well, figure a on this person, topic, a safe person, and be a able safe to talk person to. on this topic. Yeah. So let me see if I can recap what I'm hearing then. So parents should be the authority on sexuality in their homes. Uh, yeah. The expert. You're I, the sexual expert. Absolutely. And your kids are embarrassed to come talk to you. So you're going to have to initiate yes. some of these conversations. Yeah. When a child has questions, they're going to, if not default to Google. That's right. And the search engine results are going to not be people who have a Christian no. worldview. Right. Or they go to their peers and you can imagine who know, who know even yeah. less than they do. There you go. So you've got two <laughs> fifth graders talking about, yeah. you know, uh, sexuality right. and getting all the wrong answers and right. all the wrong worldviews and all the wrong attitudes. Yeah. And so we cannot raise our children in isolation. This is the world we live in. That's right. And people are probably listening to this podcast right now saying, oh, my goodness, the world's so broken. The world we live in is so horrible. 
Listen, the world we're living in sexually in America is tame. Yeah, yeah. compared to what compared Paul, to what Paul mm-hmm. is dealing yeah, with in right. Corinth. Absolutely. And Ephesus. Yeah. So I, I don't want our people to be freaked out. The, the, the early church is having these conversations. This letter is being read publicly in the congregation oh, yeah. from Paul. And they didn't have child care during services. So they're all there hearing all of this. <laughs> And it's healthy. Yeah, it's- it, is, it is very healthy. And, and so, I, I mean, I don't want to put a number on it necessarily. Um, but young, young, but young. And I think, and I think, what all the studies show is that they say eight years old is not too young to start talking about sexual topics with your with your child. Eight years old, and that might be shocking to some, but again. The exposure rate goes up, the amount of ability for, for our students to access this kind of material that, again, we want to be the guide on that. We want to be their shepherds, if you would, and, and what this all looks like. If we want to make sure that they have a positive sexual image uh, of themselves and others, if they're going to be trained up to not view it as this taboo topic that nobody can talk about. And so then they repress all these feelings and ideas that then can explode and really terrible ways that they shouldn't. So like just what we've seen actually this past week in Georgia, when we saw this guy claim to have a sex addiction and he goes on a rampage and kills eight people to remove temptation. That was his reason. And do you think he had healthy talks about sexuality? He he clearly the, the news media made much about the fact he came from a Southern Baptist background. Yeah. And so once again, the conservative Baptists are, are dealing with a topic now. Right. We haven't had healthy conversations about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Here's a man, again, I'm not blaming his mental illness on the Southern Baptists. No, no, no. But the Southern yeah. Baptists need to be crying from the highest mountains in America now with a loud voice. This is not who we are. Right. Or they need to be saying, we've really... Or we need to change. We, re- we really need yeah. to change yeah. how we're dealing with sexuality in our congregations. Again... Let me just go back to you very gently touched on this and Jeremy did too. There's this double standard that exists with the women that it's always their fault. Yeah. So in this case, he shoots up a bunch of women who he didn't even know it appears, but to remove temptation because it's her fault somehow yeah, that she's tempting that him. he's filled with lust and can't control it's crazy himself. So it's pure craziness it's evil really. But again, I, I want to be very transparent. Growing up in this Baptist tradition, I heard stuff like this. Right. Yeah. That it was the woman's fault almost always right. for, you know, allowing the man to causing him to lust or whatever. And this double standard has got to stop. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we talk about how we've heard this growing up. Unfortunately, it's something that is still very prevalent in very. certain circles to where any kind of action that a man does against a woman, you know, comes down to the woman's fault. And we just want to emphatically say that it's not who we are that's not who we are it's not no. what we believe and anyone who sins in any way is responsible for their yeah. own sin and no Period. one else is i'd love to as much as possible distance cornerstone church from that i that is an absolutely you know I, again I, I feel as the pastor the lead pastor a little bit of guilt by association mm-hmm. that you know that people are going to say well we have baptist roots here you're just like those people who now fill in the blanks who it's always right. the one's fault. Or just, if we could just wipe out all the women, temptation would be gone. We believe something completely different than that here at Cornerstone. And yeah. I don't know if that means we're not Baptist or, or if we're not this or we're not, but I just know that's not who we are. It's not what we teach. And I'm glad Paul is talking about this. I'm glad the Holy spirit led him to address this because I feel like for us as a church, we need, to be having these discussions. Yeah. And it's very hard as a pastor just to come out on a Sunday morning and say, okay, everybody, we're going to talk about sex this morning. That feels mm-hmm. really weird. So I'm glad that God has arranged things in such a way that we can come out a few Sundays here and say, hey, look what they're dealing with. It's a similar thing to what we're dealing with, right. or yeah. maybe not a similar thing, but maybe it's a moment then for us to stop and say, what are our attitudes about sexuality? Right. What are our attitudes about immorality? How do we feel about the world's worldview on yeah. hedonism and, and all of this? Sure. And it gives us a great opportunity like this to, to talk about it. Let, let me shift gears just a little bit. I'm going to deal with some of the, just the topics I talked about Sunday. Okay. And we can just pass through them quickly. But if there's one you guys would like to make a comment about or ask a question about, or you think it needs to be clarified, mm-hmm. we'll just, we'll deal with that real quickly. So 
he, he talks about really the marriage context and talks about sex within the marriage. And he deals with in the opening seven verses, no abstinence within marriage. Mm-hmm. Any comments on that at all? Because that seemed to be the, the, the little ripple went through the room on Sunday morning when I announced this, this point. You could just feel the little wave of, I don't know if it was a chuckle or a, a murmured amen or, or some elbow jabs to your spouse. I don't know exactly what happened, but you just feel something happened in the room right there. Yeah, I, I, I like this point, obviously. It, it's, it almost feels like we all do. this is a no-brainer. You know, It almost feels like, why does Paul have to say this in the first place? There shouldn't be, but here again, here it is. It's wielding sexual activity as a weapon against your spouse or against the rest of the Christian community to say that I am so holy. Yeah. And that's, that's silliness. That's not, that's not what's supposed to be happening. You're not supposed to be abusing or using your body this way and assuming that it doesn't impact who you are or the other people in your community, particularly, you know, your wife or your husband in this, in this particular instance. Right. Well, you have to see the first seven verses of chapter seven as again, being the conclusion of the last section in chapter six. Yeah. And this is something that really the chapter and verse numbers have really failed us on is that this is the continuation yeah. of the previous conversation about fleeing sexual immorality. Don't link yourself to a prostitute. Right. You are joined as one flesh with your spouse, right? And so then if you're caring for your spouse, you're caring for your own body, then why would you want to abstain from anything? You know, it is a, a natural conclusion to the conversation at the end of chapter six as well. I also think there's a really great emphasis to be made here on the fact that, again, sex is not bad, especially um, you, in the context of a, of a marriage. It's not bad. And people should be having sex. It's it's good for, for each of you to experience that intimacy. It's the fuel to your fire, if you would, to be in that relationship together. And so it's great to be having these intimate relationships in the marriage context. And I think that Paul saying that out loud should just give everybody the freedom to express and experience what they want in their marriage. And we think in their context, again, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Gosh, we have this, all over the they're, place. they're arguing for the right to engage with prostitutes. <laughs> yeah. And then they turn around and, and argue, argue for the right to, for abstinence within, yeah. uh, within the marriage context. Or somehow or because whatever. now we've, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, it's, that's just like a, a whipsaw effect of emotion you're dealing with there. Paul goes on to talk, addresses widows and widowers and, mm-hmm. and basically says, Hey, if you want to stay single, great, great. Let's, let's make disciples. Yeah. Or, or, or get married or get married. So this, this element of flexibility now shows up all throughout this text where Paul, so obviously somebody was arguing they had to get married or somebody was arguing that you were prohibited from getting married. Right. And Paul's like, no, no, let's have some flexibility here. Yeah. And Paul obviously has a preference between the two. He always yeah. tends to default to the singleness. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Why do you think Paul is so focused on, you know, it, it's a good idea to be single? Yeah, well, he says it. Verse 32, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both. And he just goes on and on about this. Because, the, no, the whole point is guys. devotion, though. Let's use you guys. You, you, you're married. Mm-hmm. You have, both have two young kids. Yeah. Your average day, y- you cannot devote all of your day to reading the word of God and prayer and making disciples and building intentional relationships because you're going to have story time. No, sometimes you can barely time. devote five minutes <laughs> right. of uninterrupted time. Right. You have to cook dinner. You got to do laundry. You have to make sure the house is in order. You have to chauffeur children here, chauffeur children there. Yeah, keep them entertained the whole time. I mean, there's Let's a lot fast happening. forward, and it's yeah. going to be homework on top of homework, right? On top of school projects, yeah. On top of book reports, on top of I need to go to the sports library, activities, on top of sports yeah. activities, and and none of that is wrong. No, no, it's all that's great. all awesome. Yeah, and, and I don't think Paul's con- condemning absolutely it either. Not. Yeah, yeah. He's just saying if you didn't yeah. have a wife or a husband, sure, and you didn't have children. Wow, just think about how much time you would reclaim right. in your life and yeah. you could spend your undivided focus yeah. doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think what he's trying to do here is redeem both institutions of singleness or marriage. He's trying sure. to say to the Corinthians, either one is good. Be devoted to the Lord. That is the whole point. Whether right. you're single, you're not wrong if you're single and you're not wrong if you're married. Do what you want. <laughs> he goes on to talk a lot about divorce but not as maybe a 
an exposition on divorce that right. he never deals with the, the legal issues mm-hmm. like we would have in America. Right. I mean, this is a legal contract that is, when you say I do and the pastor signs that and you mail that marriage certificate in, right. you're, you're bound legally. Now, all of a sudden, there's different tax filing. There's, oh, my goodness. There, I mean, there's all kinds of governmental. Equal distribution of assets now right. comes into yeah, play. Right. There are legal issues, custody issues, if there are children yeah. involved now. None of those things are being addressed. Yeah. He, Paul is not addressing legitimate reasons for divorce. He's not really addressing legitimacy of remarriage. Mm-hmm. He's not. There's so many things and not covered. You can't look at this as a. This is it. This is a response to specific questions yes. about divorce that he was getting. And although we don't know exactly what they are, we can kind of piece together part mm-hmm. of this conversation, you know, and it, it does being married to a pagan somehow defile me as a Christian or does God see me as immoral because my spouse still worships idols? I'm engaged and my fiance is an idol worshiper and I've just received Christ and I'm like, oh my goodness, I just realized we're in two different spiritual spheres now. Right. Do I need to break off my engagement? You know, at all of these specific questions are flying at Paul in the zero Corinthians exchange. And he's addressing those specific questions. And I just want to say again, that's why when you read a particular passage of the Bible, especially this chapter seven on sexuality, divorce, marriage, et cetera, you have to be careful to overlay this on our context in America. This is their situation Mm -hmm. and not our situation. I have never, I've been 24 years, I think almost as the senior pastor, and then raised in a pastor's home, I cannot recall a single conversation where someone came for pastoral counsel and said, my context is this, mm-hmm. I'm married to an idolater. Now, if I was Pastor Ezekiel sure. in India, this would be a question I would have fielded. Many times. Many times. Here in America, this is not a question I've ever fielded. Yeah. You know, should I break off my engagement? This, that, or the other. Yeah, and while we're talking about just these circumstances behind variations of reasoning with divorce, we did get a question that came in that just asked for a little bit more clarification about something that we said in the last podcast. And it had to do with, we we were talking about the immediacy of physical abuse, the immediate need of needing someone to be removed from that circumstance. And I just want to clarify quickly that that does not negate the immediacy of any other type of sure. abuse, right? We all abuse is wrong. And Period. any victim of abuse should quickly and with the support of the church remove themselves from the abusive situation. And so uh, us talking about the severity and immediacy of physical abuse was not to minimize other to forms minimize of abuse. Other forms no, of abuse. Obviously, so. all forms of abuse are categorically wrong and against the will of God and the church should support the abused person getting out of those circumstances. And, and I think one of the principles of what chapter seven really points to is that we should use our discernment in our own situations. I think yeah. that, re- that really is what Paul wants for the Corinthians and what, what I think he want for us. Well, it's exactly what he did. He took the commandment of the Lord. Yeah. He said, now, you know, this is the Lord's command is no divorce. Right. And again, Jesus, he's quoting Jesus. Right. Who's living in Israel among the Jews dealing with a context, specific context. And Jesus, Jesus is quoting Moses. Moses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. And so now Paul's quoting Jesus and what he, so Jesus takes the teaching of Moses and freshly applies it. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the teaching of Moses, we're talking about, let's say the 10 commandments for sake. So when Jesus is dealing with the 10 commandments in his culture, he's saying things to his people. Here's how he made a fresh application. He would say things like, you've heard that it was written in the law, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, mm-hmm. if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Right. Yeah. Or you've heard that the law says you shall not kill. And I'm saying to you, if and he makes a fresh application yeah. of the law yeah. and says, you know, if you hate your brother without a cause, you've already murdered him in your heart. Well, now in a similar way, Paul takes the teaching of Jesus and the principles that G and here's the principle marriage. Here's the consistent biblical principle. Yeah. From Moses to Paul all the way. And should be even today. Well, Genesis. To- yeah. Let's go even to yeah. today at Cornerstone. <laughs> I don't mean to end it with Paul. Yeah, yeah. The consistent application is marriage is God's invention. Yeah. It's his idea. That's right. 
It's Genesis 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. It's how we were created. It's what God envisioned for us. Yeah. And again, I, I want to just, I want to be snarky to Paul for just a minute and say, Paul, but if everybody remains single, where is planet Earth 2,000 years from now? Where, where's, where's human? Where, what's the human condition, right. you know, if, if all Christians stop marrying? There's no more procreation. No more where procreation. Are we after where that? are our families? Exactly. So that can't be for everyone. And Paul acknowledges it's not for everyone. Yeah. But the consistency is this. Marriage is upheld with a very high view. And nobody from Moses to Jesus to Paul to us should back off of that. Yeah. Marriage is God's holy institution. It should be held in the highest of regard. Okay. And we should, let me say it another way that's maybe simpler. The church should champion marriage. Yeah. We, we, we should champion that we want our young couples not to live together, but to commit their lives to one another yeah. and, and raise a family yeah. and be happy and enjoy the institution of marriage that God has made for humanity. Paul upholds marriage, but at the same time, he takes the principle of Jesus and reapplies it freshly mm-hmm. with a fresh and new application to the Corinthians who have a wildly different context, wildly different situation. In this church, you have converted prostitutes, converted slaves, converted Romans, Roman freemen, converted Greeks. You have a m- mixed congregation of all kinds of peoples who come from all kinds of sexual ethic backgrounds Mm -hmm. coming together in one room. Paul says, here's the common denominator, uphold marriage as holy and God's idea. But with flexibility, now he applies it and he says, but if you're married to a pagan and they want to depart, let them depart. So with flexibility, Mm. he backs off of the never divorce rule, if you would, and makes a fresh application and says there may be context now yeah. Yeah. because this is so very different. And he makes a statement about peace that really not many theologians know how to explain. He just simply says in that context, you know, God's called us to peace, which feels like in my heart that God does not expect that we're going to live in chaos. Right that our homes are to be a little bit of heaven on earth and should be mm-hmm. if we're for growing spiritually, yielding to the spirit, preferring our spouse before ourselves, loving one another, loving God with all our homes should be a little bit of heaven on earth mm-hmm. and where they're not, obviously it's because of the hardness of sin in our lives that we're having to deal with all the other, all the other scenarios. I, I was attending one of the, a small group this week and one of the men in the small group, asked the question to me in front of the group and I gave part answer, but deferred and told him I'd deal with it in the podcast because if they're asking it, others are obviously asking it. And the question that I was asked in the, in the small group was, does the Bible put sexual sins in its own category? Are sexual sins somehow in a whole category of badness uh, of their own, you know, Mm -hmm. the, That'd be something I'd like to get your guys' opinion on. Do you, as you read the New Testament, see, do you feel like, the, now I don't want to talk about the church, we'll deal with that in a minute, but does the Bible seem to put sexual sins, because what you're really saying is, does God, that's really kind of what's implied here is, does God see sexual sins as some upper echelon yeah, some t- it's, a t- it's a tier one sin, yeah. and this will confine you to the hotter parts of Hades. Then, <laughs> right, right. yeah, is it is it somehow much worse sexual sins in the eyes of God than other smaller kinds of sins? Well, I think the viewpoint is coming from First Corinthians chapter six, verses like eighteen through twenty. Flee sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So that phrase, you've sinned against your own body. Sexual Mm -hmm. sins are against your own. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, uh, this is a very, it's complicated. 
because yeah. we do think there's kind of two things happening here. There's a larger context that's not dealing with just the specific personal individual, but there's also some of that embedded within the conversation as well. I think a way that you could sin against yourself in some sense is that you are an image bearer and you are violating your image bearing role as, as one who's supposed to be looking more like Jesus every single day. So when you commit sexual sin, it doesn't make it any worse than any other sin. Yeah. However, you are doing something physically as well as maybe mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So, so it adds an element or adds a layer to what's actually occurring. Yeah. And so you're, you're, because again, as an image bearer, you're not just spiritual, you're not just physical. And this is what the Corinthians wanted to do is they wanted to split everything. And here's Paul reminding them, you're not just one or the other. You're both packaged together. You're a, a whole thing. You are an embodied spirit. And what you do in your body impacts you spiritually. What you do spiritually impacts what you do physically. Right. And so you're all tied together. And I really think this is this is Paul's point. He's not trying to say sexual sin is so much worse. I don't think he's trying to say that. He's just trying to point out to them that you are an integrated person. Yeah, and I think that there's another reading that gives mm -hmm. it a secondary nuance yep. to this. I think so too. Um, where when you read the when you read that verse in conjunction with the surrounding verses, it's actually a very simple read. So let me go backwards a few verses. Yep. And this is in chapter six. He asks, "Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? Mm -hmm. For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. Right. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Flee sexual immorality." Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And we've already established now from this same passage, who is joined with his body? That's right. His spouse. Yeah. Which is why prostitution should be completely out of the, the out of frame. Out, yeah. yeah, completely out of the frame of, <laughs> right. you know, acceptable behavior. behavior. It's because you are joined in body to your spouse. And so when you sin immorally in a sexual manner, mm -hmm. now you're not just sinning against the Lord, you're That's sinning right. against your own body, which is your spouse, yeah. right? And when you read it in line with the rest of the verses that are surrounding yeah. it, it's like, oh, well, that actually makes complete sense. Yeah, if I sin sexually... I'm not just sinning. Doesn't just I, affect you. I'm not just sinning yes. from an internalized place. Sure. I am sinning not only to God, but also against my wife. Right. Right. In essence, you're sinning against your own happiness, your own peace mm -hmm. at home. Yeah. Your yeah. own family, your your own harmony. Because your own we are unity. joined together in it one is against body. You. It and, is against your own body. And your wife. It, yeah. it is. It's, yeah. Now, yeah. Let me go back to the question. So the question was asked, you know, does the Bible, is the way the, the man asked, but I would just say, does the Bible or does God see sexual sins as, you know, this more heinous version of sin? So what would the short answer be? Yes no. or no? No. Jeremy? No. no it's Okay. No. So we are all in agreement on that. So here's really the way I think he wanted to ask the question is this way. Why does the church mm. see sexual sin as more heinous than other sins? Now, had he asked the question that way, I would have said, but we don't. But what it's revealing of is historically the church has. And that's what I want to gently pull that thread without being condemning to previous generations or our traditions. But I do feel like the church has made sexual sins its whole category. It's whole. It's, own. A, it's a bracket all into its own. Or at least that's how it's been. That's how it has traditionally been viewed within the church is that, you know, if you have sinned sexually, not only will you be ejected from the church body, but you will likely never be allowed back in. It's almost like sexual sins. The message that was sent to me growing up in this tradition is that we can forgive any sins. You can, you can rob a bank, shoot the security guard, commit murder, steal millions, repent and cry with tears. And you'll be restored and forgiven. And praised publicly for it. For Listen, this man was, was, I remember we had people touring America. I was Al Capone's getaway driver. Hmm. And he was, you know, people like that giving speeches in churches where they were lauded and praised for the big turnaround in their life and the repentance and the look what happened and how God's using them now to share the gospel. But if you commit a sexual sin, it's almost like it's, nobody ever said this. 
but it was implied it's unforgivable. Well, and even if repentance had occurred, there was always a whisper, right? Anytime someone would be back in the church and have repented from a sexual sin, it was still very hush-hush and everyone knew about it. As I was talking to the small group, I said, you know, I think one of the greatest masterpieces that dealt with the issue of churches, the churches, the, and I say the church, I'm going to say Christ, Christianity at large, the double standard that existed in Christianity historically regarding sexual sins and other sins. I think the masterpiece on this was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. It used to be a rite of passage in America public mm-hmm. school system that you had to read The Scarlet Letter, you know, ninth grade or something, 10th right. grade, and, and, and do a, a paper on it or maybe a presentation. He's one of the great American uh, storytellers, and he did a, a masterful job of revealing in his story. And, and I don't know Nathaniel Hawthorne right. a, enough about him to know if he was really on a, a reformers type uh, approach trying sure. to get the church sure. to reform, or if it was just a, a pithy and juicy novel that he wrote that got everybody's attention. But in the story, you know, obviously the a young lady is found to be with child in a Puritan community, and they've created in their Christian community a shame community. Yeah. Much of what we see in the, in the Eastern nations historically, but in the American colonies, the Puritans had created this shame culture. And so they made, I think her name is Hester Prim. Sew a scarlet, a red A for adulteress onto the front of her dress. And wherever she went, she had to wear the scarlet letter. It was a shame culture. And as you said, Jeremy, even though her sin could be confessed and forgiven, the community didn't forgive it. Right. They still whispered and, and, and pointed. And uh, I remember reading that and she, she can deliver the little baby. I think her name was Pearl. And the townsfolk always pointed their finger and whispered and said, you know, that child was conceived in the woods with the devil and that's a little demon child. And they talked so horribly about an innocent little girl that came into this world with no fault of her own, but the little girl was ostracized and, and shamed along with her mother and Nathaniel Hawthorne's genius is when the story is told, the child was not Satan's seed, it was the pastor's seed. Mm. It was the pastor that was sleeping with the young lady, Hester Prim, and had conceived the child out of wedlock. And so while he was up preaching against everyone else's sin and, and railing against sexual sins, he was involved in that very sin. And so, yes, the church has taken somewhat of a hypocritical stance on sexual mm. sins. And again, I think it's another reason we need to talk about these things openly. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to be able to say to people who have committed sexual sins that the blood of Jesus Christ covers those too. Yeah. Wherever there is a heart willing to repent, there is the grace of God and the mercy of God willing to forgive your sins. And of course, I'm talking about we're sending on purpose that grace may abound. Paul says to that, God forbid. But I'm saying... We cannot build a culture here or in any church where we can invent one, we can designate one classification of sin to be worse than the others. And therefore, you can never find forgiveness and and restoration and a way forward. And that gets difficult because society is always trying to invent new and twisted ways to sin. Yeah. You know, but God's grace still covers that. So, and, and I do I, just to jump off of that again and to kind of come back to what chapter seven really shows us in like the whole chapter together really shows us that we can't just apply a singular rule to any one singular situation, you know, whether the sin is heinous or not or whatever, we have to deal with each situation and each person and apply a lot of discernment, a lot of grace. Yeah. And we also have to approach every situation with a lot of humility. And I think this is exactly why Paul's so frustrated with the Corinthians right. is because they're not 
humble. They're not gracious. They're not discerning. And yeah. so he has to yell at them to try to get their judgments correct because in the, in the first place, they're not even following the Lord <laughs> in the basics. Right. And so if, if we can have a robust faith in Christ that's growing every single day, we're going to be able to approach very difficult situations, whether they're sexual in nature or not, and apply a lot of discernment, a lot of grace, and a lot of humility. And we just pray that it's, we're making the right choices. Nobody knows how to navigate situations that are really difficult. Yeah. You just have to do your best. And I think that that's what Paul is trying to push us towards. And what Paul would say, your best is to find biblical prin uh, principle. We're, we're not into this, you know, sometimes this type of language. We, oh, you're into situation ethics. No, not at all. But the entire book of Corinthians is situational. The yeah. entire yeah. book of Ephesians is situational. Right. The entire book of Philippians is situational. Yeah. So in a sense, yes, the Bible demands that we apply biblical principles to our present situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where a situation ethics might be just, you know, figure out what, what the greater good is. That's not what the biblical ethics is teaching. Biblical yeah. ethics is not saying, what Paul's saying either. Let's stand with yeah. Moses. Let's stand with David. Let's stand yep. with Isaiah. Yep. Let's stand with Jeremiah and Jesus and Peter and Paul. And let's see how they applied. Right. And then let's make a fresh application to 2021 in Fort Worth, Texas with the situations we're dealing with. We too have the Holy Spirit. Right. It's not as though the ethics change and vary based on situations. Right. Instead, it's that your discernment changes yes. based on situations. Right. And so ethics, really, you know, God-based morality is a constant. And you can't ever escape from the right and wrong morality of ethics because God defines what is right and what is wrong. It's then how do we discern our situations yeah. in a alignment with that with that level of of morality and as that david describes. said that's never easy this right. is hard work yeah it's hard work well and we want to systematize everything to death to make it as easy as possible for us to discern and go through situations wisely this is why the pharisees love the law because we have 613 do's and don'ts that are very easy to follow and if you're not righteous like us then you're a terrible sinner yeah and and so then it becomes this big debate and then what jesus does is he says Okay, there's a heart behind the law, though. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to uphold, here's the new ethic. Love God, love your neighbor. Right. Yeah. And that is the so much... The law kills with the spirit that's gives right. life. And that is so much more... That's a such a, a greater umbrella now that can cover these situations that we're dealing with rather than a set of 613 laws that happened 3,000 years ago that may not bear weight on my particular context at this moment. Whereas love transcends every context. Right. And, and so what Jesus has given us is not a list of rigid, hard and fast rules. He's given us an ethic and principles to, and, and, and a moral compass to walk by, which thank goodness we have the Holy spirit as well, yeah. who also guides us, but he's also given us this great thing by which he will judge us, which is, did you show love? Did you walk in love? Were your motives updated or, or, or did they come from a place of love? And if we can't answer those questions, again, with grace, humility, and discernment, do they apply to this new covenant law that Jesus has given us? Then that's where the judgment ought to come from. And I think going into the chapters you're going to teach Sunday now, 910, mm. one of the things you see is that the Corinthians, well, you've already seen it, but you, you just continue to see it. The Corinthians clearly, the attitude is the issue. Yeah. They clearly do not intend, they're not ashamed of their sin. Right. They're arrogant about their sin. And so rather than repent of their sins, they, they look at the apostle Paul and say, well, maybe you don't have the Holy spirit. Maybe yeah. you're not a man of yes. God. Maybe yes. you're not God's apostle. Maybe you have no authority over us. And it's, it's, there is no tender heart. Listen, if someone is trying to find repentance, someone is trying. That's to find not their attitude. Oh gosh, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And this yeah. is not that conversation. Absolutely. And so you can't just have this hard and fast rule. Listen, what's the attitude of the sinner? What are the, are they trying to get things right? Right. Are, is there, are they, anyway, they clearly are not trying to get things right in <laughs> Corinth. And so. Yeah. I think when you open next week and you're dealing with some real strain between Paul and the Corinthians over his authority, that's why the strain exists because he's called out their sin. They have no intention of repenting of their sin. Hmm. I think that's a pretty good covering of chapter seven. Again, most of which is not 
our context, right? but it leads us to apply freshly the principles yes. to our context. And yeah. obviously, if questions uh, come up in the coming days, we'll continue to answer them, Absolutely. send them right in. And we look forward to what's going to happen on Sunday here, Pastor David. Hey, thanks for that great discussion today, guys. I love being able to engage in this content and really dig deeper than we would have just had, you know, just listening on a Sunday. Here we get to really discuss and engage with the word and listen with a more critical ear. And so we're really excited that we have had this opportunity. We're so thankful that you guys have all listened as our listeners on this podcast. Again, if you want to join in the conversation, we'd love for you to be a part of it. So text your questions, your feedback, and any kind of response that you have to 817-809-3040. We've loved studying the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we cannot wait to continue our study on Sunday as Pastor David opens up the chapters of 9 and 10, and we get into that content. 